There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've got a treat for you today. We're talking about sex. We're talking about SEX. We're talking about sex, baby. I got Dr. Kate Lister. She's an absolute legend. She's a lecturer at the University of Leeds, Trinity. She curates the online research project, Halls of Your. If you're not following Halls of Your on Twitter, then what is wrong with you? You have no idea how many attempts I had at recording this introduction. All of my comments and observations about sex either felt uh, horrifically inappropriate or like some pathetic middle-aged dad trying to be cool. I think it's best if I just let you listen to this podcast and glory in the weirdness that is the human relationship with our own bodies and the sexual act, an act that is so natural that none of us would exist were it not for it. We're proud at History Hit that we cover human history in the widest possible sense, from Roman orgies through to Donald Trump's presidency. If you want to hear more podcasts, of course they're all available at historyhit.tv. It's our our digital history channel. We've got hundreds of history documentaries up there. We've got more, and actually a lot more dropping this week, a lot more documentaries. We're growing fast and we're keen to provide the best service we can, especially during the lockdown. And we've also got hundreds and hundreds of uh, back episodes of the podcast exclusively available there. And as well as new podcasts, actually, new podcasts with uh, exploring different parts of history going live soon as well. So please go and use the code POD1, P-O-D-1. You get 30 days for free and then you get a month after that for just one pound, euro, dollar. So two months should take you through most of the lockdown. In the meantime, everyone, enjoy this curious discussion about sex. Kate, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. What a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's so lovely to be here. Thank you. Your book and, of course, your digital present, you know, work you do on, on sex history is astonishing. I urge everyone to engage with it, buy the book and everything. We'll tell them how later on. But when you came to write sex history, history of sex, like pe- a lot of people get surprised when I tell them I'm doing this podcast or I'm reading your book. Has it been taboo in historiography just as it has in sort of, you know, polite dinner party society? It has. It's a strange subject to... I mean, all historical subjects are unique and come with their own set of 
problems and quirks but sex history is particularly it's tricky right because it's a subject that we still inherently struggle with so attempting to talk about it in an academic uh, fashion or just you know just a chat can be very difficult for some people a lot of people don't think of it as being quote-unquote proper history there was some research done that suggests that anyone who researches sex in any kind of capacity does suffer a stigma in academic circles, whether that's people kind of giggling or or not taking it seriously or kind of raised eyebrows. So there is all of that that you have to kind of get through to get to it. But there's a lot to be said for steering into the skid when it comes for things like this. People have fun reactions to it. And I like that and I play with that. But yeah, it's definitely there. It's odd, isn't it? Because if there's one thing that we should be studying the history of, exploring what humans have done, it's in our sexual behaviour, because it can be so radically different over the years, just as the binds that tie us politically, our economic models. I mean, the way that we have engaged with each other sexually are so much more complex than, say, amongst our primate cousins. Yes, it's something that really sets human beings apart from almost every other living creature on the planet is these rituals and fetishes and kinks and anxieties that we have around sex. But the act of sex has remained pretty much constant all throughout (laughs) history is we know what goes where. But the behaviour around it can vary massively. Like, you know, if you look at ancient Greece and ancient Rome, they had basically institutionalised paedophilia, is what we'd recognise it as today. But for them, this system of older, wealthy, influential men taking on a quote-unquote apprentice, who was a young lad, a young boy, it was not only completely normal, it was aspirational. So, you know, the attitudes around sex vary so greatly dependent on which culture that you're looking at. What do you think when you look at today given that you know more than anyone about the history of what people have been doing to other people for the last 5,000 years, what strikes you as remarkable about the way we have sex today? It's tricky because it's not until you've been through it and you look back on it, but I think that something that does set us apart our own culture, especially dating kind of like the wake of the Me Movement, I think that that's something that will be remembered all throughout history and will be really influential going forward. I think that it's our scrutiny of consent is something that makes us quite unique and how willing we are to scrutinise what we mean by consent and when does someone consent and and it's a lot more complex than somebody just saying no that you know power differentials and all kinds of things play into it I can't think of any culture that hasn't said that let's say rape for example is okay but what they defined as rape varies extraordinarily from culture to culture I mean the Vikings wouldn't have regarded raping slaves as rape because they weren't considered free people anyway you know so it's our scrutiny of consent I think is something that will be remembered for. You've got so many chapters in your book around slang is a huge one. Obviously, the nature of relationships in terms of who we have them with, same sex, all that kind of stuff. Pubic hair is one that's fascinating at the moment, isn't it? Because you said on your social feeds, the discussions around pubic hair are the most energetic, the most aggressive, the most kind of polarising. Probably, you know, in the wake of Brexit, there's probably been more severe ones. But pubic hair will always create a fuss on the social media, on the Twitter site. So if I post a lot of vintage erotica, and obviously if you're posting nudes and erotica from the 19th century, this is pre-Hollywood waxing. So people's bodies just look very, they're just natural bodies, aren't they? They haven't been plucked and photoshopped and everything. And maybe that's something we'll be remembered for as well, our own time. But it's kind of telling that we have a, a really big reaction to what is effectively a completely normal, healthy body that it's supposed to look like that. But pubic hair and armpit hair is something that people comment on a lot. And 
I do get the odd person who, you know, voices some kind of disgust or says something really critical about a full bush or, you know, a little uh, wobbly belly or whatever it is. But most people have the reaction, which is just, oh, my God, I don't remember the last time I saw a body that looks like that. So it's a really interesting thing that's happening at the moment is that we're not used to seeing normal bodies. And when we do, it's worthy of comment and people are still surprised by it. But pubic hair, yep, people aren't used to seeing pubic hair, especially women with pubic hair. You get a comment on it every single time. Let's take that as an example. You trace the history way back and it's not as simple as just saying, oh, it's just a strange modern fashion. This is something that you were able to find evidence that there was discussion around trimming and around shaving and waxing throughout history, including some rather interesting recipes. Yes, the recipes for hair removal in the, in the Middle Ages. It, it was adding arsenic and lye together and then pouring it on the hair, the area that you want the hair to be rid of and then washing it off, presumably until it takes off all of the skin as well as the hair. For me, the big discussion around sex, and this is what everyone sort of finds with, the, with books about the Victorians nowadays, is instinctively people feel that I think people in the past were different to us. And particularly sort of declinists and people on the right say, oh, everything's terrible now, everything's much better in the old days. And yet there's this kind of countervailing idea that actually the Georgians and Victorians were like totally deranged, you know, like boning all the time and like all over the shop, right? And there's these two like twin tracks of popular historiography, if that's the right word. And, you know, you're uniquely placed to kind of judge on that. Like, do you think that these periods in our past that are famous for being slightly more prudish, slightly more moral. Do you think that uh, sexual activity would have been pushed into the, the married bedrooms and single people would have been excluded from it? I mean, over the years, do you think our patterns of sexual behaviour have changed as radically as culture suggests that they have? It often says a lot more about ourselves than it does about the the people that we're trying to research. I think that we take a lot of pleasure in othering ourselves to the Victorians of making them out to be really prudish and repressed because then by comparison we're really liberated and and free sexually but things were different and it's important that when you're you're looking at something especially like sex history is there isn't one single narrative so you can't say that all of the Victorians were really sexually repressed any more than you could say that Today, people are really sexually repressed. Some people are. Some people today think that sex is something that's just happening uh, between a man and a woman and in a marriage. And then there are other people that think radically different to that. It is the same in the 19th century. So you're not dealing with one narrative going through. You're dealing with multiple. By and large, the kind of forward-facing front of Victorian society is more prudish than ours is but that doesn't mean that that's filtered down to to real life you know they um if you just look in more polite society what's socially acceptable they did frown more on sex than we would today or at least they were more easily offended but they also had an explosion in pornography so just because you know you don't get a lot of porn in let's say Jane Austen novels for example doesn't mean that it wasn't there and that people weren't enjoying it and just because you found um, documents where doctors are saying that masturbation can be terminal does not mean that that filtered down into popular consciousness and people were paying attention to it so you've got to be really careful when you're looking at this stuff to try and construct what an entire group of people over a hundred years thought about sex they were different from us but you have to be careful trying to make the point that well everybody must have thought like that then one of the more disturbing parts of your book is issues around control over a woman's body and particularly concerns over a woman deriving pleasure from sex and we talk today about female genital mutilation 
I was amazed how sort of mainstream in the Christian West it was over preceding centuries. I mean, tell me a little bit about that. Yes. So the clitoris is, I mean, it's had a pretty appalling history, the poor thing. So throughout most of Western history, it's been understood that that was where sexual pleasure derived from a woman. And therefore it became under attack, basically, with the idea that if it was too large or if it was, quote, unquote, misused, that that would inflame a woman's desires and she'd become kind of sexually uncontrollable. There's also sort of references to perhaps the clitoris can cause lesbianism, if not properly controlled. So what you've got is this kind of anxiety around female sexuality in general that's being misdirected at this one part of the body, the clitoris. And you can see that going right back into the ancient world where there's awful descriptions of um, medics and doctors trying to cut out the clitoris or, or trim it back or some hideous operation on it to try and curtail women's sexual desires. And I'd love to say that that stayed in the ancient world, but it didn't. It still happens today, female genital mutilation around the world. One of the reasons for that is to try and control female sexuality. But it was with us in the West right up to the 19th century and then beyond that as well with Freud, all right, he wasn't cutting out clitorises, but all his work that a clitoral orgasm is somehow, quote unquote, immature, sexually immature, led to all kinds of crazy medical theories that women were sexually frigid if they couldn't orgasm through penetrative sex. So it's really been misunderstood and, and abused all throughout history. Where does our shame come from? It's this the question that I think hangs on every page of your book, you know, whether it's... Uh... Mr. Kellogg, inventor of Kellogg's cornflakes, tried to create boring food to suppress our sexual appetite. Where is the idea that being sexually ambitious, or if that's the right word, you know, wanting, wanting to have sex is dangerous, is bad for our health, is shaming, is evil? Like, why is that? And is that our culture or, or do we see that across other cultures as well? You see it all throughout other cultures. You see it, like, all cultures have got rituals and behaviours and systems of control around sex. Even ones that we might look at and say that, oh, they're really sexually liberated. There's always something somewhere that is shameful. And it's a, it's a really, really tricky question as to where does the shame come from. And my own thought around this is that it's to do with control and it's to do with controlling what are ultimately quite primitive urges. I think that we feel a lot of anxiety around that at any point where we feel out of control. And I think that sexual desire can sometimes make us feel like that. Sexual desire has the power to make you act in ways that perhaps common sense says that you should not. And I think that that is an area where we feel weak and we feel vulnerable because we can't control it. It's like this thing just takes takes hold <laughs> not, not that everybody's sex crazed lunatics but you know what i mean is it 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 can make us act in ways that that will get us in trouble that we don't think that we should do and i think that anywhere that we feel like that can make us feel vulnerable you sort of feel like the same shame around food a lot of the time this idea that if you eat too much that you're somehow gluttonous or that that you can't control yourself anywhere that it's like you can't you've lost control over your quote unquote base urges will create shame I think that's where it's from. When you're at conferences, when you're talking about the history of sex, I mean, you mentioned that there is some stigma. Do you feel that the work, your work is taken seriously or, or is it pe just people find it a kind of laughing matter? I think that it is taken seriously. I like to think that it's taken seriously, but I can't deny that it is 
also something that people feel very uncomfortable around. But there are more and more sex historians coming through. I mean, Fern Riddell's done some brilliant work and the Mary Beard with her, the shock of the, the nude and all these things. So we're, we're getting there, we're moving forward. But it's also a subject that people want to know about. It's a subject that people are interested in. So you've got to kind of focus on the on the good things. The reason that people want to know and the reason they want to read the book is because they are inherently interested and fascinated and slightly embarrassed by these things. I hope that people take my work seriously but I'm also aware that it is fun and is that I use a lot of humour but like if you look at something like the book I try and use a lot of humour but it's also put a lot of footnotes in there and try and make sure that everything is meticulously referenced so you can go and look it up yourself but I can't pretend that this isn't something that any scholars working in the field of sex studies have to contend with is that people often don't take it as seriously as they would while studying trains for example. <laughs> trains yeah they can't joke about trains this is an embarrassing follow-up because I hope it doesn't sound like I'm taking it seriously but what examples of sexual practice have you come across you're just like what is going on with that and like that where there's just no trace of it in the modern world. I think that everything does endure everything we invent new technology to um around sex that enables what looks like new behavior but it's it's not really it's just different expressions of old things but i think like sex robots they confuse me going forwards <laughs> that's probably one i don't see the appeal but i wouldn't want to yuck on someone's yum i think that everything's been rooted there's nothing new under the sun everything's been rooted nice pun intended when you're looking back at these really intimate moments that have been captured in fragments of diaries, sources, poems, bawdy songs, whatever it might be. Is what strikes you difference or is what strikes you the kind of sense of common humanity and our common urges and, and behaviours? I think I always look for the, the commonality. Is I know that like it's kind of the difference, I suppose, is where the humour comes from. But that's one of the things I really love about studying sex history is that it is one of the great universal levelers that we have. And you have it in common with Henry VIII and Mother Teresa and any historical figure that's ever existed has had a sexuality, a sexual... Even people that identify as asexual, that's still a sexuality. It's something that we all have in common. It, it cuts across class boundaries and time and it's a real unifier. And it's something that you can absolutely relate to. So when you're reading, you know, mad medieval accounts of bread dildos and all kinds of mad stuff is it sounds crazy but it gives us the ability to relate to that so it's always the commonality that I look for and that I think is really really precious but it's a difficult subject to research sex history because most of the time you don't get first-hand accounts people just don't do that they don't write down and I urge anyone listening please do please start a sex diary write it down and then put it somewhere leave it for future generations because we just it's so rare that we have that we have Anne Lister's diaries which are just incredible like the Dead Sea Scrolls of sex history but most of the time the sources that you're looking at are things like medical journals legal records actual first-hand accounts are so rare and precious it's a great point. I think my sex diary would be of fairly limited interest now to future generations. Well, listen, Kate, you're an absolute hero. It is a astonishing, uh, astonishing work right across um, publishing and, and digital publishing as well. Tell everyone just quickly about the digital side. How can people stay in touch with you? So you can follow my Twitter ramblings at at Whores of Yore. Uh, the website that you can go to and read kind of all kinds of things that people have written, sex workers, activists and historians, and that's thewhoresofyore.com. 
And um, yeah, that's how you can get hold of me. And I hope to see you there. And the book is called? A Curious History of Sex. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Thank you very much for coming on, Kate. Good luck with it. Thank you. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.